Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Barb is away this week, and since the holiday season is approaching, it's time for everyone to get busy ordering Sisters-in-Law merchandise. Go to politicon.com slash merch, where you can get Sisters-in-Law t-shirts, tote bags, water bottles, hoodies, pins, 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 and much, much more. Today, we'll look at the subpoenas issued for Trump's presidential documents and the results of not complying with a subpoena for the January 6th committee, the ongoing Rittenhouse trial, and jury selection in relation to Batson v. Kentucky. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to the heavier-duty news, let's talk about the sad Uh, announcement that Brian Williams is retiring. I know we've all been on 11th Hour with Brian, and we all love him for different reasons. I'll start by saying he was actually the first host that I appeared with uh, before I had a contract with MSNBC. Um, I had written an op-ed, and he tracked me down to rural Texas, where I was with girlfriends, and convinced me that when I got back from rural Texas, I would go on his show. And he was the most gracious, wonderful, smart, savvy, charming, smart, kind person. And he made you feel special. He made you feel like you were really contributing something. And I know I'm going to miss him enormously. Uh, Kim, what about you? Yeah, you know, I understand he has had a decades long esteemed career and, you know, when you when you are a pro like that, I can understand being um the allure of wanting to take a little bit of time for yourself and your family and not want to stay up till midnight at work every night. I get that. But it is sad because I do really enjoy doing his show. You know, he, he's one of the folks who even after I've been on 11th Hour a few times and had the pleasure of meeting him, when I would come come onto a set, I would feel, you know, just a little bit of, you know, nervousness and intimidation because this is Brian Williams. And I remember once when I was in the studio in New York and I was coming in to sit down and I'm getting mic'd up and he takes his glasses off and he looks at me and says, that picture on Instagram of you and your mother is so adorable. I showed it to my daughter, you know, like, it's like, oh my God, (laughs) it's like, Brian Williams is looking at Instagram pictures of me and my mom. Like, but that's so genuine. Like, that's who he is. He would ask, when he asked about your family, you knew he really wanted to know. When he would joke with you, you know, he's a New Yorker and I used to be a Red Sox fan. So he used to like to, you know, push me on that a little bit. He's just a great guy. Somebody who um, really knows, tries to get get to know the people who he talks with. So it will be sad when he's gone. But, you know, I'm... I'm not entirely sure he's gone, gone. What do you think, Joyce? I don't think he's gone, gone. You know, he has such a keen intellect. Um, He loves to remind you that he doesn't have a college degree and then proceed to be the smartest person in the room with the the keenest analysis. Uh, But I'll tell you what I like so much about him, and I hope I'm not going to get emotional saying this. He's just such a good human being. And I remember being in New York the day of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing and sitting next to him for the whole day. And there were a, a lot of women who were providing commentary that day. 
And there were people who were very distressed for a lot of different reasons, people who had worked with Kavanaugh and and who had um, not expected to see this bad side of him and were very disappointed, and women who were horrified that he was about to become a member of the Supreme Court, and women who were profoundly um, concerned about how Dr. Blasey Ford was being treated. And throughout that all, he did something that impressed me so much. He kept everything going, but you could see him deliberately getting out of the way to let women's voices predominate and to let them analyze the issues and talk about what was going on with genuine interest in his part on their views. And it really stayed with me on on what was a a sad, horrible, depressing day that's responsible for a lot of where we are, frankly, with the Supreme Court now, to see his staunch support for women. There was no question in my mind that that was what that was about. He's somebody who's always been there to support, whether it's the people on his team, whether it's you know women like the three of us who have the honor of meeting him and being on his show. Um, And I'll tell y'all one last funny thing. So his parents went to my college, Little Tiny Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. And he went to the trouble of telling me that he and his brother had put a bench in their honor um, out on the campus, but he wasn't exactly sure where it was. And it turned out it was right outside of my daughter's freshman dorm. My daughter went to Bates, too. So every time I would walk past the bench, I would sort of think about Brian, and it would always give me that warm, happy feeling. What a great guy. We're going to miss him a lot. Absolutely. And I think we'll also hope that the format for the show stays the same because it is a unique format, summarizing all the news of the day and talking to experts. And I think we all, I I know I really appreciate that. But the other thing I'm going to miss is it's not just the 11th hour that to me equals Brian Williams. It's all the special coverage that he has been the leader of, elections and the Kavanaugh, all the Supreme Court hearings. And so he's really much bigger to NBC and MSNBC than just being his one-hour show. So we all wish him the very best of luck and happiness in his new venture, whatever that turns out to be. And I personally hope we'll get to see a lot more of him. When we decided on our first topic yesterday, it was looking at what in the world is going on with the January 6th committee subpoena for former President Trump's presidential documents regarding the planning, the day of, and the aftermath of the events of January 6th. But minutes before we started recording today, big news broke. Bannon was indicted. So the topic has to be expanded to include his indictment and the more general subpoena power of Congress. I'm going to start, though, with, you know, in order to understand the Trump presidential documents case, which is now in the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Kim, could you give a brief recap of the procedural history of the case and why these documents are important? Why why does the committee need them? Yes. So the January uh, 6th committee, special committee, sought records, subpoenaed records, including White House visitor and call logs uh, around January 6th, uh, handwritten memos from the files of ex-White House chief of staff Mark Meadows, and more. Just we mentioned the call logs, just things that really could help the committee paint a picture of exactly where Donald Trump was, who he was speaking to, what was being said leading up to that event, which is a crucial fact. So the former president sued 
to stop those records from being released. They're they're held by the National Archives, which is um, normally what happens. But he's alleging that it's um, covered by executive privilege. That went to a uh, trial federal trial court in Washington, D.C., and Judge Tanya Chutkin said, nope, there is no executive privilege here, sent it back. Trump filed an emergency motion for a preliminary injunction pending appeal or an administrative injunction. That's basically, uh, in lay person's terms, means uh, buying time. Uh, The judge, again, said, no, there is no executive privilege here. There is no need for intermediate relief. And so he appealed to the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And that's where it goes from there. So depending on what he wants to do next, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit more, but he could um, try to um the, the the next steps he takes could depend on whether he's really trying to run the clock out which we suspect he's going to do but that's where we are at this point okay and let's just point out that the documents are presidential records they are not his personal documents they don't relate to anything other than his job as president um or possibly his job as the leader of a coup attempt um but they are also the type of documents that are crucial to not only understanding what happened, but to identifying other witnesses who would be key yes. uh, people. It was the same type of documents that my Watergate team sought and obtained and really was valuable, essential evidence for getting to the bottom of what caused Watergate and, in this case, what happened um, but Joyce, I hey, want to Jill, turn to- can I ask you a question about that before sure. we move on? Because sure. I think it's it's maybe not clear to folks who haven't had your experience. Mm-hmm. But for instance, one of the documents that's been under discussion is White House call logs or visitor logs and call logs for both um, former President Trump and Pence. So, Jill, can you talk about what is it that you get? I mean, it doesn't seem very important, right? Call logs or visitor logs. What use do you think they'll make of it in connection with January 6th? Oh, my God, I could give you hours of discussion of how crucial those documents are. I I won't. I promise you, listeners, we're not going to do that. But by looking at the call logs, which every phone call in and out of the White House is logged, you get an idea of who was he talking to. Was he talking to the command center at the Willard Hotel? Was he talking to Mark Meadows? Who was in the room with him? And then you will be able to find out what the president knew and when he knew it by talking to those people as well as to the former president. Those are really important. The notes, um, in the case of Watergate, it was the chief of staff was a man named Haldeman, Bob Haldeman, and he kept prolific notes. They were, for example, when it came to the 18-minute gap, That's how we know what was on that 18-minute gap is because he takes notes of the very meeting that's being recorded and erased. But we know what's on it because he took those notes. Mark Meadows, I don't know if he took those kind of notes, but you certainly want to see Mark Meadows' notes because he was there. So it, it really is essential, not only because of what it reveals, but where it leads you. Because you may find some strange phone calls from people you never expected to find, and you're going to want to talk to those people. So that's why it's so important. 
And, and, and Kim, I don't know if you were finished. Did you want to say something well, else? Well, yes. And I felt bad because I, I really should have pointed out when I was explaining the procedural history of this case that Judge Chuckin was relying uh, in denying this claim of executive privilege that Donald Trump was trying to make, was relying on the Nixon case and really um, painting how even when the assertion was made then, the judge said, well, no, this, this executive privilege is not and never was meant to be uh, a blank protection on anything that any current or former president um, can assert. So I just wanted to make sure that, you know, our listeners had had your perspective on that. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I, as I watch all of these arguments, I just go, it's so obvious that there is no there there, that there is no such thing. There's no absolute immunity. There is absolutely no protection for any conversation that involves the commission of a crime. So whatever executive privilege does, it only covers when you're having a conversation about public policy, about the job of the president, which, as we all know, does not include riling up a crowd and telling them to go and march and stop the counting of the ballots for the Electoral College. So it, it, it seems to me at all points that ultimately this is going to be a failed substantive argument. And that I also, I guess I should point out that in Watergate, we went, we subpoenaed conversations in April, middle of April, and by about two months later, no, three months later, <laughs> the Supreme Court had already ruled. We had gone to the Supreme Court, we had argued it, we had a decision, and within a week after that, the tapes were public, and the president was forced to resign by his own party because in those days we also had one set of facts and there was bipartisanship and the Republicans saw the proof that the president was committing crimes and they forced him out. So, and it happened fast. There's no reason why this has to be delay, delay, delay. And, you know, that's one of the questions I want to get to for particularly Joyce, who's our appellate expert. But before we get to some more of these details, I really want to ask about the Bannon indictment. And for our listeners, I want them to all know that we're literally talking minutes after this was released. So none of us has actually read the full indictment. We're talking on limited information, but on expectations based on what we know about contempt and indictments. So Joyce, um, can you talk a little bit about the indictment of Bannon for contempt of Congress? Sure. So this is a two-count indictment charging two violations of 2 U.S.C. 192. That's the contempt of Congress statute that we've been talking about. And although it's a misdemeanor, it's an unusual misdemeanor. If Bannon's convicted, he'll serve a mandatory minimum 30 days in jail and up to a year for each of these counts. Um you know, we're a PG-themed uh, podcast, so you may <laughs> want to just cut this. But but I'm going to say I thought the best characterization of this indictment I saw was on Twitter from friend of the podcast, Professor Jen Taub, who said, uh, fuck around and find out. But this this indictment is a real smack in the face to all the folks who've been thinking that they have impunity to ignore the rule of law in this country. I know for a lot of people this comes awfully late and it's a slow start, but, but let me tell you, this is a nine-page indictment. It lays out 
in detail what Bannon did and how he violated the law. The reason it's in two counts is it addresses both his failure to testify and his failure to turn over documents. And it's a signal not just to Steve Bannon, but to every other witness out there. Hey, Jeff Clark, and, you know, hey, Mark Meadows, that you're not going to get away with ignoring a subpoena from this Congress. You may not testify. That's something important that we should say. This is a criminal prosecution. This isn't civil contempt proceedings, which would require the witness to testify to cure the contempt. This is a criminal proceeding. They go to jail whether they ultimately testify or not upon conviction. It shows that DOJ is serious and that they mean business here when it comes to their role in protecting Congress. Right. And and just to stress, it does not mean that we will get his testimony. He can just serve his time. And we have an example from Whitewater where a witness went to jail for 22 months, which I've never figured out because her sentence was only 18 months, but somehow she served 22 and she never testified. So, but that was not- different, right? Wasn't that civil contempt with Susan McDougal? Yes. And, and when it's civil contempt, you actually hold the keys to your own prison. In other words, yes. if you agree to testify, you immediately get out of prison. You right. cure the contempt. Yes. In a criminal case, I mean, this is this is really a strong signal um, that Bannon will be punished for his failure to comply with the law. Well, can I ask you, too, the former prosecutors this? So to me, what this felt like and why this is so significant is that I'm not sure how much helpful testimony um, the committee expects to get out of Steve Bannon. I think he is most useful with this first indictment, this first criminal referral, as the example. Because not everybody, look, look, Steve Bannon's already been indicted. Like, this is old hat for him, right? But all these other folks, they may not be having all their legal bills paid for by Trump world. They may have their own reputations that they don't want to their resume to include a criminal indictment. This shows that the DOJ means business and that Bannon was helpful me perhaps as this example, but that's just me spitballing. What do you all think? No, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think, you know, that Bannon thought that he could play and he got outplayed here by Merrick Garland. I, I agree, but I just want to point out that he wasn't subpoenaed to be an example. He yeah. ended up being an example, but I think that there that's was right. an expectation that he would have some valuable information and was worth subpoenaing and worth holding in contempt. So, it's just sort of slightly Well, remember, there was difference. a lot of speculation about Bannon when he was indicted for fraud. Remember, he was ripping off the people that were sending him money to build Trump's yes, wall. Yes. And Trump ends up pardoning him so that he doesn't have to even, you know, go through the trial or any of the proceedings in that case. And I remember that at the time, part of that analysis was that there was a concern in the Trump camp that Bannon would give Trump up rather than go to prison for a long period of time. Here we're talking about a more modest sentence, but one does have to wonder whether or not Bannon might decide to have a little uh, come-to-Jesus meeting with prosecutors down the road. Yeah, and he could negotiate a reduced sentence. I for, love uh, the look yeah. on Kim's face. I'm so <laughs> sorry not. that our listeners <laughs> he Kim just, had like she was like, There is no way that's happening. <laughs> There's no he is in so deep for Trump that I just don't I think he's in a different position than the other people who may possibly face criminal contempt referrals, but I don't think he's budging. Okay, so let's let's look at some of the substantive issues. Um, that are before the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia and 
eventually, it, whether we think it's going to go to SCOTUS, what, what the Supreme Court would have to decide. Um, and those in, involved, as, as Kim has mentioned, things that are second nature to me from the Nixon era, and that is who can invoke executive privilege, although that was never decided about an ex-president versus a current president, and whether executive privilege can stop release of information that is essential to the public interest. And Congress is right. I want to broaden it because of, of this, the subpoena, uh, or the in, indictment of Bannon. Congress is right um, versus the prosecutors because, again, if we look at the Nixon, um, U.S. v. Nixon, that was the prosecutor's right in a criminal trial definitely outweighed the potential generalized confidentiality of presidential documents. Um, so anybody want to comment? Joyce, do you want to talk a little bit about the substantive issues before the court? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's really interesting how these issues have come together. We had for a while what looked like two separate trajectories. We had the Trump papers that the January 6th committee was pursuing, and that's the case that we'll talk about that's in front of the uh, D.C. Circuit now. But we also had the committee subpoenaing these witnesses who weren't showing up and testifying, which seemed to be on a separate track. Ultimately, though, the issue is the same issue, I think. The issue is who can waive executive privilege. And as you point out, Jill, there's this slender issue that's undecided in the Nixon case that remains open. How much power does a former president have to say, I don't want you to release my documents or let my, let my former staff people testify? So I was really compelled by something that happened in the district court here. A government lawyer named Elizabeth Shapiro, who argued the case for DOJ, was going back and forth with the judge, and she said, you know, Your Honor, this might be an issue of first impression, but that doesn't mean it's a difficult issue. I thought that that was just the right insight. It's not a difficult issue. And Jill, you and Kim have both said that at this point. This is not a difficult issue for us to parse because at bottom, we know that a former president who might be able to weigh in and offer some thought and impact, ultimately, that former president, you'll forgive me, can't trump the sitting president when it comes <laughs> to making these sorts of decisions, particularly in a case like this where President Biden has articulated a clear and compelling reason for the public needing to have access to this information to get to the bottom of January 6th. So I, I think the case resolves in the Court of Appeals in favor of the administration. Trump might try to take it on banc. He will certainly try to go to the Supreme Court. Who knows? They may even take it and, and write something um, to it. But I think because we're having this delay in the Court of Appeals, where they'll take an extra two weeks and do some briefing and hear full argument on the case, I think that will make it ripe for uh, being dealt with on the Supreme Court's shadow docket, where they can just decline to, to hear the case and refer to the circuit court's opinion and let everybody go on their merry way. And I want to pursue that a little more. But first, I want to mention that there is a case uh, GSA versus Nixon, in which it does suggest that there is, he can weigh in, but he is trumped by the current president. And as the district court made quite clear in a brilliantly written decision, we don't have a king and the president is not a king and Trump is not even the president. 
that Biden is, and he gets to make the decision. Um, but do, Kim, do you think that the purpose, because I think we all are agreeing that ultimately this is a losing case, that there is no executive privilege that will stop this. Is he doing this just for delay, or is there some substantive value that he's trying to get? Oh, absolutely. I mean, aside from the fact that I think Donald Trump will fight anything against him and, and <laughs> just because he enjoys that. But yes, this is a stalling tactic, and it's a political stalling tactic. Yes, it's a losing uh, legal battle, but by the time you get as Joy said, the en banc review of the full appellate court, and then um, go to the Supreme Court and appeal, appeal, appeal. It, it, he's trying to run the clock out for the midterms in November of 2022. That's the next big goal. So it's clearly uh, that is what the strategy is here. It's not the, the desire to change constitutional law interpretation. And it seems to me that the damage of that delay is significant and that we should not forget that that is the damage and that it could have been done quickly as it was in Watergate. And also, Joyce, just very quickly, because we're running out of time, the issue of you could go straight to the Supreme Court. He didn't have to go to the Court of Appeals. Many people don't know that it's possible. It's what we did in Watergate. We went there and we said, not only do we need to go straight to you, but you need to expedite it. And we recommended basically two weeks for all briefing. I mean, it was unheard of. And they agreed to it and it worked. And it was decided long before the trial. So that we got the evidence in time for the trial. Yes. So I think the composition of the Supreme Court was different back then. <laughs> and the equities were different so if you're Trump, you don't really like this panel that he's drawn in the D.C. Circuit very much. They're all Democratic appointees. I really don't think that matters. I just think this is a legal issue and the judges are going to take it at face value. But I suspect Trump looks at it in the same stark political terms he uses for everything else. Uh, so we could see him try to go directly to the Supreme Court. We could see him try to get judgment before Sir Shirari. We just saw DOJ do that, in fact, in the Texas abortion cases. There, the Supreme Court had a real reason to say yes, which they did. They obviously wanted to decide that issue of the crazy Texas vigilante provision in proximity to their decision in, in Dobbs, the Mississippi case. Here, I'm not sure I see a compelling reason for the Supreme Court to take this case. And, and you make such a good point, Jill, about Nixon versus GSA, which is this Nixon is out of office. And this is a consideration of what power does a president have when he's no longer the president. And although the court leaves it open a little bit, there's a lot of good reason to believe that he simply doesn't have the power he wants to assert here. Once he's out of time to play the delay game that Kim has done such a good job of explaining, you know, his whole little house of cards has folded and, and he's done. I don't know about you guys, but Headspace is a lifesaver this week. The news has been breaking so fast that I have needed to take a deep breath, put on my headset and Tune in to Headspace to get relaxed enough to be able to even just breathe. What about you, Joyce? You know, I'm so grateful that Headspace uh, advertises with the podcast. That's how I found them. And this week, more than any other week, I have really needed them. 
With today's dropping news between Bannon and the two trials that are going on in Wisconsin and in Georgia, I know I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night with my mind racing. I'm so glad that I will have headspace there um, for that moment that I know that's coming. What about you, Kim? Yeah, I think that um, this is an example of why Headspace is so important. I actually use Headspace even before I did this podcast, and uh, I'm so glad that they are a sponsor because, you know, there are times that you need to get away from everything that is happening. It's important that it is uh, for us to talk about it and help people understand. We ourselves have to take good care of ourselves. So one thing I love about Headspace are the meditations that you can do while you're out on a walk. Um and they're crafted so that you're not in danger, but you can still really enjoy your surroundings and just take a moment. So sometimes I take a walk during lunch hour or after I'm done with work just to clear my mind in that way. You know, life is confusing enough, but meditation doesn't have to be. Headspace is your convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercise to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep all in one app. Headspace makes it easy to catch your breath and take time for your mental health. It's science-backed with a study proving just two weeks of Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Meditation works, y'all. It really does. Using the Headspace app for a few minutes each day helps me feel better and it helps me ditch unnecessary stress and anxiety. You really have to try it to feel the difference. Let's try it now. So sitting comfortably, just taking a big deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. As you breathe in, noticing how the body expands. And as you breathe out, just watching the body soften as you gently close the eyes. And rather than the mind leading the breath, allow the breath to lead the mind. Notice the sensation of the breath. Notice where you feel it in the body. If you need to, you can just gently place your hand on the stomach. And just following that rising and falling sensation. Nothing else to do, allowing thoughts to come and go. And then when you're ready, just gently opening the eyes again. Find some headspace at headspace.com slash sisters and get one month free of their entire meditation library. This is the best headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash sisters today. That's headspace.com slash sisters and use promo code sisters or look for the link in our show notes. So this week, Testimony in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, the teen who took a high-powered rifle to a social justice rally, wrapped up. He's charged with first-degree intentional homicide and a number of lesser charges. So, Jill, how do you think the prosecution in this case went? And what was a key moment or uh, a surprising moment for you that you think really exemplified what's going on? So I want to preface all my remarks by saying I am at heart a former prosecutor, although I have been a defense lawyer for significant defendants. Um, and I think, you know, Joyce may agree with me because Joyce is 
definitely a former prosecutor. And Barb... I have that DNA. Yeah, exactly. And Barb <laughs> does too. And so when the three of us discuss it from that perspective, we may have a different view because I hear the other commentators on MSNBC saying things that I go like, really? I don't think so. I, I think that the prosecution went pretty well. Um, I think there were some glitches. The prosecutor made some strategic errors and some um, self-inflicted wounds. Um, I think in terms of what was a, a, a key moment, maybe not so much in the prosecution, but in the defense, the fake tears. I mean, to me, and again, this may be my view as a prosecutor, but that if you want me to do it, I can do it too. <laughs> and there was no tears flowing. I'm sorry. I wish I, you guys could I mean, see that. You know what we call that in my, in my old office? We used to call that all snot, no tears. <laughs> Okay, we didn't have that phraseology because I never had anybody break down in tears. But you know what I mean, right? I mean, people who were sobbing, but they were dry eyed. No, I mean, it just looks so phony. But as prosecutors, but as prosecutors, both of you, the the idea that the defendant will be placed on the stand, that's so unusual. I just learned in law school that you you just don't do it. So talk a little bit about that decision too and what that well, meant for this case. I, I, I've had defendants testify. I mean, in organized crime, they sometimes think they are powerful enough to do it. But I've also seen juries go when particularly, I, I remember once a rebuttal witness, which is why I hope we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about the rebuttal here. Um, the jury went, oh my God, she caught him in a red-handed lie because he the Defendant took the stand and said he had been at this very important meeting. He couldn't have possibly done the crime because he was meeting with his official in Washington. And we brought the official in who said, I've never met this man before. And that's when I knew, I knew when I heard the juror say that, that was a conviction. I didn't have to do anything else. It was over. Um, So I I don't know. Joyce, do you have a different view of that? No, I mean, I think you're right. But I I also think that self-defense cases are a little bit different. If you're going to pull off self-defense, I believe that the defendant almost has to take the witness stand and look the jury in the eye and tell them uh, his or her story in order to succeed. In this case, the defense said in opening statements, they promised the jury that they would hear from the defendant. And so I think that they had no choice but to follow through on that commitment. If they had not put Rittenhouse on the witness stand, the jury would have perceived that as a form of deception. So, Joyce, talk a little bit more about the defense and how that went. He's charged with a number of uh, intentional homicide um, and, and as well as gun charges, curfew charges, uh, attempted homicide. But talk of, about the fact that this is a self-defense case. And when I watched it, one of the things that I kept asking myself is, well, does the fact that he did not live in Wisconsin, that he no one asked him to come to Wisconsin, that his gun was illegally purchased for the purpose of taking to Wisconsin? He's not a medic. He's not a security guard. He has no special skills. Does that weigh here at all? So that's a really interesting question. And the answer to that is, I think, unclear. In fact, Barb and I spent some time earlier this week talking with one of our former U.S. attorney colleagues in Wisconsin about just this very point. 
And ultimately, we did agree that the law's not clear. Here's how that plays out. Before the jury deliberates, the judge will instruct them on Wisconsin self-defense law. And so he'll tell them, and I should say that self-defense is different in all of the states. It's a statutory creature, and the states have wildly different laws. But but in Wisconsin, you can get self-defense to protect yourself from interference, but you can't use more force um, than is necessary to terminate whatever is being done to you. That's sort of the legal language, but what it means is you can't bring a gun to a knife fight. You can't shoot someone for taking a slap at you. So that'll be a first-line distinction here, whether Rittenhouse used more force than was necessary to repel the people he shot at, even if you believe he's entitled to, to use the defense. But perhaps more importantly than that, you're not entitled to claim self-defense if you were the person who engaged in the conduct that provoked other people to attack you. So that, I, I think, is where your question really comes into play, Kim, right? Is yeah. this whole story of him coming from another state with a gun that he couldn't even legally purchase, um, does that entire line of conduct become evidence that the jury can use to conclude whether or not he provoked people and lost the right to claim self-defense? What I'm looking for is the precise language that the judge uses when he uh, instructs the jury on the law. And then one more twist here. You know, Kenosha is a place with a difficult history. They've gone through economic hard times. Um, people there are definitely not better off than they were four, eight, 10, 12 years ago because they've lost the, uh, the car factories that were building cars and, and doing um, downstream work in that area. There may not even be a unanimous jury verdict here. It, it occurs to me that this could end up with a hung jury that's unable to decide the issues. Before we go on, I think the gun may have been picked up in Wisconsin, that he didn't bring it with him, that it wasn't actually his. It's interesting to consider whether the jury consider can consider that this gun that he wasn't even old enough to purchase for himself, that he picked that gun up and brought it with him to the events that night. So, you know what, let's talk about this judge. He abraded the prosecution twice, and he made some bizarre and seemingly racist comments about Asian food. He had a weird ringtone. Jill, how might that affect the outcome? I don't know that it'll affect the outcome because some of this was not in the presence of the jury. Some of it was. But some of it is if the defense, I'm sorry, if the prosecution had the same rights of appeal, there would be certainly reversible error in some of this. And you'd have to look at, is he the right judge for this case? His ringtone on his phone, which first of all, why is his phone ringing in the courtroom? No one's allowed to have a phone ring in the courtroom. And his is Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA, which is the Donald Trump theme song. That seems to me to send a message that's quite scary if you're the prosecutor in this case. The Asian food remark was certainly a tasteless, horrible thing, very racist. Um, his display of a cookie book, he was studying something on his desk very carefully, and then he picked it up, and it was Christmas cookies. What is going on? Um, but It was a Christmas cookie cookbook. I know, it's like ridiculous. But, but then you get to his disparate attack on 
the defense versus the prosecutor. He sort of ignores the defense doing exactly what the prosecutor did, and then looking at the prosecutor and going, well, what is making you have that face? You want to speak up now? And, you know, when you talk about him yelling just at the prosecutor, it's, yes, I, I can see why he might have been upset, but his demeanor, his tone of voice was definitely not what I would call professional judging. And he is, I think, the longest-serving judge um, in Kenosha, and so he certainly is experienced. Um, it, it seemed a little unfair in the same way that we can look back and say he wouldn't let the um, prosecutors call the people that were killed victims, but he would let the defense call them looters, rioters, arsonists. And he did require that they prove that before they could actually say that. But he didn't say you can, you know, at any point call them victims. And that is a longstanding rule of his. So that kind of makes sense. But I think in general, we have to just, you know, hearing that ringtone made me go like, whoa, this is a biased judge. What do you think, Joyce? You know, I was less concerned about some of the early rulings. I had heard from some local lawyers up there that this was a judge that they had enormous reservations about. He came to this case with a lot of concerning history. But those early rulings didn't bother me too much. For instance, he wouldn't let uh, the prosecution refer to victims, but it was okay to say people that the defendant killed. So that concerned me less. And although he initially uh, said that uh, the defendant could refer to his victims as looters or rioters. He said that he could only do that once he right. offered proof that that was in fact true. So I viewed that as being something that I might not have loved, but that I could tolerate. And it would certainly protect the record on appeal. If the defendant was convicted and you have to go on appeal, the meaner the judge is to the prosecution, the easier it is to defend the conviction. But of course, that's the problem here. Has this judge intervened to the point where he could uh, prevent uh, a conviction. And something that I think people don't always focus on is how different criminal cases are. You know, this isn't a situation where whoever loses gets to appeal. Because of double jeopardy, if there's an acquittal and the defendant gets off, the prosecution can't appeal that. They have no remedy for the judge's misbehavior. So what you have to do as a prosecutor is you have to learn how to deal with it in trial in front of the jury. You have to find ways to neutralize it and find ways to prove your case despite whatever hurdles the judge puts up in front of you. Sometimes judges do that. This case, I think, is an extreme example of that happening. So just as quickly before we move on, I want to ask about jury instructions. It seems uh, the prosecution is asking for lesser included charges to be in part of the jury instructions as uh, former criminal attorneys. What does that say to each of y'all? Well, first of all, they, he, the indictment includes both the most serious homicide and lesser degrees of homicide. So you would, of course, have to instruct them on each of the counts um, as to the lesser. And a lot of people are interpreting the, the request for lesser included offenses as being the prosecution thinks the case is weak and wants to make sure that it gets something, even if it's not the maximum. 
but they're already charged that way. So I was less concerned about that um, and think it's always a good idea to ask for lesser included offenses as a general rule. In Wisconsin, if there's any way that the person could not be convicted without the, the lesser offense or um, that they can't be convicted of the lesser offense if they can't be convicted of the greater one, that they won't allow it. Um, and the judge did let them include lesser for one of the victims and not for the other. You know, I, I think it's always a judgment call as the prosecution, really as the defendant too, whether you want to ask the judge to charge on lesser included offenses. The calculus is sharper if you're the defendant, right? I mean, what you're trying to do is if you believe your client is going to be convicted, you're trying to avoid him being convicted on the most serious charges that will subject him to the longest period of time in jail uh, in hopes that the lesser charge is what the jury will return and, and the sentence will be lower. As a prosecutor, I think it signals a little bit of concern that you're in trouble, to be honest, and, and that may be what's going on here. So on a week like this, I will admit I have no dinner plan for myself or my husband tonight. So it's so lucky that we have HelloFresh that makes it so easy for us by sending all the ingredients we need for a delicious meal right to our door. Jill, how are you enjoying HelloFresh? It's fabulous. Of course, the foods taste great, but more importantly, they make me feel like a professional chef. It looks just like, if you follow the recipe, it looks just like the picture on the recipe, and you put it out and you just feel like you're in a restaurant. And they have new fall flavors, and that's been fabulous now that the weather's turning really chilly. They have some very warm comfort food that I'm, I'm loving. And you, Joyce? You know, I am, and on the weeks when we forget to order from HelloFresh, I tend to make reservations for dinner. <laughs> um, and even worse than that, my husband makes, I don't know if you saw um, my post on Twitter last night, he made hot dish, which is this like potatoes and cheese, and it was good, but it was loaded with fat. The reason that I like HelloFresh is because it's so healthy. It tastes good, it's easy to do. And it's healthy. It's fabulous to have it waiting in your refrigerator, especially during a week like this one. It's quite amazing. And for people who don't know what HelloFresh is, it is a package that includes fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes. It's delivered right to your door with everything you need to create that particular recipe. Skip the grocery store and sign up with HelloFresh to make home cooking easy fun, and affordable. All their meals are tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts for deliciousness and simplicity. And their limited edition holiday boxes give you all you need to cook up a family feast, no planning necessary. You can easily customize your order on the app within minutes, pick the meals that you like the best, and feel good knowing that you'll be getting fresh, high-quality ingredients from the farm to your door in less than a week. So don't wait to get started. HelloFresh is a can't-beat value. Even at full price, it's over 30% cheaper than grocery stores. And with this holiday deal, it's time to try for even less. Go to HelloFresh.com Sisters14 and use code SISTERS14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. 
That's HelloFresh.com slash Sisters14 and use code SISTERS14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts or look for the link to America's number one meal kit in our show notes. And you know, Joyce, you mentioned that it's when you forget to order. When you forget to order, if you're signed up, they send you two meals anyway. And every time they surprise me with these really great things that I might not have picked, but I love. You know, we've found that it's the things that you don't necessarily um, plan to order for yourself that sometimes really rock your, your week's meals. And it's always good to have change and something fresh. We're all watching a lot of trials right now. And of course, at trial, it's the jury that ultimately decides the issues. In fact, that's why we have juries. Cases go to trial when the parties can't agree on what the facts are. So we let juries listen to all of the evidence, and then it's up to them to decide what really happened. That's obviously a really important role. It's critical, especially in some of these criminal cases that we've been paying attention to. So let's talk a little bit about juries and how a defendant ends up with a jury of his peers. That's the constitutional standard and how juries are selected. Kim, can you start us off by discussing the process of striking a jury and also tell us what the Batson case is all about? Yes. So uh, generally speaking, when you have a case... Attorneys on both sides have a certain number of uh, what we call peremptory strikes. The reasons they can they can say they don't want a jury, uh, a particular juror on a jury, and dismiss them for any reason or no reason at all. But it is both wrong and unconstitutional to strike a black juror or any other juror uh, based on that juror's race. Well. The problem is it took until 1986 for the U.S. Supreme Court to state that clearly and to establish a test for determining whether that constitutional violation may have taken place. So they created a three-part framework in a case called Batson v. Kentucky. First, the objecting party has the burden of making a prima facie showing of purposeful discrimination. So in non-legal Latin terms, that basically means that if no defense is mounted, they would ha- what they would show would have to be sufficient to prove that there was a discriminatory um, reason to strike this uh, black juror or juror of color. Then the burden shifts to the striking party, the party who dismissed the juror, to respond with a race-neutral explanation for the strike. We'll talk a lot more about that standard later. And third, the trial court makes a credibility finding to determine if the objecting party has proven a case of purposeful discrimination. So ultimately, it's up to the judge to decide if the lawyer's strikes are racially discriminatory. Is that what I'm hearing? That is absolutely true. That's what you're hearing. Judge. So, Jill, Kim has laid out Batson for us. And typically, when that comes up, it's often a criminal defendant objecting to the strikes that the government is making in selecting the jury. But that's not what's been in the news lately. We've been talking about concerns about the defendant doing the strikes. We call that reverse Batson in my office. I'm not sure if everybody calls it that or not. But what is it that happens when the government objects to the jury strikes? That's been the situation, for instance, in our in our Barry. Yeah, and and just to make clear what the issue is, of course, Batson was intended to curb racial discrimination in the use of peremptory challenges. And 
it was aimed at, of course, the prosecution doing that. State action uh, was really what was being looked at because the defendant has a Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial and the Fourteenth Amendment right to equal protection. And the idea was to protect the defendant from uh, having a jury that wasn't of his peers because the prosecution uh, used it. And it's also to promote trust in the jury system because without having a fair jury, you can't have trust in the system. So you're protecting jurors of color who want to serve on juries, you're protecting the defendant, and you're protecting the institution. Um, But the problem gets into the rights of the government to appeal. So in a case like Arbery, where they basically objected to all uh, jurors of color who were in the panel that was being considered for service on this jury and ended up with just one person of color on the jury. And where you have a black um, victim, a, a person who was in, you know, considered to be a modern-day lynching, it's unfair not to have people who would be understanding and sympathetic. And by striking all people who looked like the victim of this murder, it got to be a problem. But the right of appeal isn't the same. If a person is acquitted, as we mentioned in this other context, that's the end of it. The government can't appeal it. If the defendant is convicted, they can appeal, and they can raise this at a further higher court, but the government can't do it. So I think that's the real problem. And um, I mean, there are some problems with Batson, but I I think maybe that's another subject. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously an incredibly big problem when the government is prosecuting uh, cases with civil rights overtones. But in, in the larger sense, Batson is supposed to make juries be um, juries of a defendant's peers. I've heard a lot of concerns about Batson. Some of those concerns center just on courts that don't follow the process. For instance, judges who fail to make that determination about whether there really is a neutral, non-racial reason for the strike. Kim, what's your overall assessment? Does, Does Batson work? Does it really prevent racial animus from getting in the way of jury selection? Yeah, uh, long story short, no, it does not work. (laughs) It's very difficult. And it's in part because of that standard that I talked about, that rebuttal standard uh, on uh, the party that is making the strikes, that they can they just need to proffer a race neutral explanation. They can say, no, you know, he was wearing a yellow shirt. And I believe that people who wear yellow shirts can't make rational judgments. That would be enough to overcome. I'm, I exaggerate, but only a little. Well, but overcome. let me give you a, a closer example. Yeah. I don't like having engineers on my jury because they want two and two to add up and be four. And when you're prosecuting a criminal case, sometimes two plus two is 4.1. So I used to just always strike folks like that who are mathematically minded. And, you know, sometimes that might mean that you would strike a black juror, sometimes a white juror. You could take that reason that I legitimately held and you could actually use that to strike 
jurors intentionally, right? So, so that's right. maybe the better example. And, and, and that's exactly right, Joyce. And it's important to realize two things, I think, about the reason why this Batson rule is so important, as inadequate as it is, um, to really protect this right. It's so important because it, it arose after a long history where, one, Black people were struck from courts, particularly in, well, most, uh, uh, particularly in Southern states, but everywhere in the North and in the West, too. Uh, on juries because they knew that the likelihood of having an actual jury of one's peers when the defendant was black, uh, having a black person on the jury would increase the chances of acquittal. Um, and, and that's just part of the reason why we see this practice of striking, striking jurors of color. And the second reason is even without that purposeful action, Black people are disproportionately underrepresented on juries with respect to the communities that they're in in general for a host of reasons, because Black people are more likely to have jobs or uh, child care responsibilities that make it more difficult to show up for jury duties. Um, the roles from which jurors are selected often are not um, uh, complete in a way that excludes uh, black and brown folks either accidentally or intentionally. There are a lot of reasons why it's already too few black folks to serve on juries. So to have the protection to ensure that people do have a jury of their peers is super important. Well, Jill, do you think that there's a better approach? I mean, could Batson be used more strictly, just applied better, or will it take some sort of judicial ruling or legislative change to fix the problems? Well, of course, it could be used better, but I think there may be a better way. And the state of Washington has done something that seems to be at least a good starting point. Um, they have addressed not just explicit discrimination, and, and I'm going to just divert for a minute to say we're talking about mostly jurors of color, but I had a trial where all women were struck, and the the defense ran out of peremptory challenges and asked the judge for extra peremptories in order to strike all the women in the panel. And he granted it. And they excluded all women from the panel. Uh, and I can explain also the reasons a, later. Also a post-Batson violation to strike on the basis of gender. Right. This was, this was one of my first trials, so it was way before Batson. Sorry. Um, way, way, way before. Um, but they've added implicit unconscious bias as well as the explicit. And they have also disallowed uh, peremptories if an objective observer could view jurors' race or ethnicity as a factor in using the peremptory, and they've disallowed the use of what are those sort of common you know, excuses that are offered as, well, I had an alternative. Things like, well, the juror lives in a high crime area, which to me is code for they're a person of color. Or they didn't make eye contact because there are a lot of cultures in which eye contact is not made, which is not the white culture that does make eye contact. Um, prior contact with law enforcement is used as another code for striking people. And they have specifically excluded those reasons as being legitimately accepted to get past the uh, Batson standard of why, you know, if you can offer a colorable claim for a, a non-race-based uh, reason. So I think that if more states and courts would adopt court rules that did that, 
maybe we would get closer to achieving the goal of Batson to curb discrimination in the selection of juries and to actually have a jury of your peers. You know, criminal justice reform has become such an important topic in this country. I think to this point, jury selection has really been excluded. It hasn't been a focus of that conversation. So I hope we'll continue to stay on this topic and some other ones and and see where we get with them. Obviously, we need to do some work in this area. So we all miss Barb this week, but we have to ask, because as we plan holiday gifts, what bras do you think Barbara would be ordering from Third Love? What do you think, Joyce? You know, I'm so excited about doing my holiday shopping. I'm going to get Barb one of everything from Third Love. Do you think we'll ever be able to get her to talk about it, Kim? You know, I think if there's a way that we can get Third Love to put pockets on the bras, she would be so into it. And I think, you know, maybe that's maybe we can get together and that can be from all three of us. Well, heads up to our friends at Third Love because we all love the bras and everything else that they make. I think Barb does secretly too. She's just, you know, aren't aren't Midwesterners a little bit more restrained? They're less effusive than Southern girls are when we talk about how much we love our bras. But, you know, being a good gifter is easy this holiday season. Even if it's just for you and you're not worried about Barb, you can give the gift of comfort with Third Love, your one-stop shop for the women in your life. They've got, in addition to their fabulous bras, ultra-soft loungewear for mom, fun sleepwear sets for your sister, premium activewear for friends, and luxe intimate sets for someone special. So gifting Third Love brings joy and feels good in the all-day wear that hugs better, holds stronger, and supports longer. I'm getting one of everything for Barb. So the 90,000 five-star reviews don't lie. And with sizes in extra small through 3X, we know you'll find your fit. If you don't love it, and we know all of you will, including Barb. Exchanges and returns are free for 60 days. Third Love even gives gently used return bras to women in need with order with over $40 million donated so far. So take the easy fitting room quiz to focus on your fit and size and shape and current issues and your style to deliver clothes perfect for you. So far, their stylists are on standby and have helped millions of women, including us, find their perfect fit. So I love Third Love's washable silk PJs with a soft like a peach touch. It's machine washable luxury. Feeling is believing. You can upgrade to everyday pieces that love your body as much as you do. And right now you can get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw. That's 20% off at thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw. Well, we're on to the part where we answer our viewers' questions, and we love answering your questions. They are some of the best thoughtful things that we uh, ever see, and we're very happy to be doing it. So this week we had a really lot of good questions, but we only have time for three. And I'm going to start with one from Courtly. And Kim, she asked, wonder if you could explain why a Texan suing anyone under the new abortion law isn't required to show standing. And it's actually not just a Texan. Anyone can sue. 
any citizen of the United States can sue. How have they, as an individual, been harmed or affected by the abortion? That is a great question. And and Jill is absolutely right. Anyone can bring a suit uh, under the language of this state law. Um, but there are many ways to confer standing. Courtly, you, you hit upon one, which is you can show that you were affected or harmed in some way and you need to be uh, to have some sort of redress and be able to go to the court for that. Another way to get standing is just statutorily. It's just because the law gives you standing. And in this case of SB8, the law explicitly gives standing to anyone to bring suit. Which I would say is one of the reasons why I hate the statute, because it yeah. isn't fair, but... Let's move on to a question from D. What are some terms we as women could use more to affirm one another when we want to acknowledge strength, fortitude, and other behaviors that typically fall under the, she puts quote marks around, masculine umbrella? Lady boss and badass are not allowed. So let me just comment as the oldest member of this team and say that when I started practicing law, women didn't support other women. Of course, there were so few of them that it it was hard to matter, but women didn't mentor other women and women didn't say nice things about other women. And women weren't always conscious of the fact that discriminatory terms were used to define the same conduct by a woman as a man. So that, but they would say a man was assertive and that was a positive good thing. And women were aggressive bitches. And so I think we need to, first of all, stop using the bad differential language. But I think we can just acknowledge that women don't have to be men to be successful, that we can use our own skills, our own talents, and our own unique um, gender-based advantages. So I, I think just by saying someone is a good boss would be good enough. Not saying someone's a lady lawyer, one of my particular horrible, one of the only language things I get upset about. You're a trial lawyer, you're a corporate lawyer, you're just a lawyer. Don't put the gender before it. Um, That's some of the things I suggest, but I bet you guys have other ideas. Joyce, do you have some? You know, I think it's so important for us to to do this. I'm not sure that I care about the specific language. What I care about is something that you mentioned, Jill, this notion of women deliberately supporting other women and really going out of our way, not just to be role models, but to bring somebody along to make space for them, to give them an entree to a group of people where they might not otherwise be welcome. That, I think, is is something that we can all do every day to help support other women. I agree with that. And I think that the, the, the real work comes in those regular conversations that you have with people who you work with, your colleagues, your uh, superiors, those who come um below you as well, uh, coming up behind you up the ladder. You know, I often find myself not so much using um, affirming code words, but saying things to people, to other women in my industry who are making moves within it, for example, as, you know, don't forget to ask for what you're worth, you know, make sure that such good advice. you know, you get the everything, the benefits and everything else. You you assert where your what your bandwidth is and what you can give, and don't be expected to 
so that they don't expect to have this be an endless well that they come back to again and again and again. And so much in that, and it's kind of built into the lady boss and badass, you know, tropes that um, Dee talks about is this idea that women are not only expected to do their job, but they're also expected to comfort everyone else, also go home, take care of the children, be super women. That that's really, that's what you're, that's what we're seeking. We're seeking to be seek super women who want it all and who can do it all and can work a 80 hour week while balancing a baby on our knee. No, <laughs> that is unrealistic. And those expectations <laughs> should not be put on us. So I think it's always important to lift other women up, um, speak directly to them, praise them, say that was a great job because of the the analysis that you did, tell them why they're good at what they do and just be really direct. Just complimenting you know, Kim, that's, someone. That's reminding me of a, a night where I was in my kitchen cooking dinner, bouncing a baby in one arm, and I had a phone in the crook of my ear. I was doing a detention hearing for a defendant who had wow. been arrested up in Tennessee. And so I was doing it over the phone with the magistrate judge in Memphis. And I got off the phone, having been able to get detention for the defendant. My baby was happy and not crying. Dinner was not burnt. And I thought, wow, I'm superwoman. <laughs> um, but no one should have to live no. like that, right? You can only do that for just so long. We really have to support yeah. other women. And and I hope and think that all of us do. And you are, in fact, of course, superwoman, Joyce. There's no Ooh. question about that. So Mm-mm. nothing to worry about. Um, and, and I think the other thing we need to do is to make sure that our successors are women, because that is how we can help other women and compliment them and get them to be our successors. So let's go to our last question for today. It comes from Kathleen. And I'm going to ask you to talk about this, Joyce. Is there any real way to heal the separated immigrant families? Money? Question mark. Personally, the trauma and fear heaped on these desperate poor families is ongoing. How many have not been reunited? Can any of us women ever imagine a baby you may be breastfeeding being confiscated? This isn't Hitler or Poland, Germany of the 1939s. This is the United States of America. And I know, Joyce, you have very strong feelings about this. You know, I do, because I think the only way to characterize what happened with the family separation policy is to characterize it as a, human's right, as a human rights abuse. The evidence is now very clear. The Justice Department's inspector general has concluded that the department deliberately neglected to ensure that it, it would collect the information that was necessary to reunite families because the goal, whole goal here was to deter immigration. And then attorney Jeff uh, Sessions believed that he could deter future immigration if word got out that families were being separated. So they were actually cheerleading this human rights violation on. Uh, total about 3,000 families were separated while the policy was at its high point. As of earlier this year, more than 500 children, many of them under age five, still hadn't been reunited with their families. And you can imagine how much more acute the problem is with younger children who aren't able to say where they came from or, or who their families are. So I think the question whether the issues these families face can be fixed, that's a little bit beyond my capabilities as a prosecutor. The answer that I would give is to say we have to try, and it's also in our best interests to try. Just very pragmatically, these families have now joined together and filed almost a thousand claims against the United States of America, some regulatory claims, some lawsuits. 
the early results the United States is getting in motions practice are bad. The government is losing in all of those motions, and, and the courts are letting the cases proceed against the government. So it's in the United States' best interests to go ahead and settle the cases. We do need to take on a range of remedies. Some of the issues under consideration are citizenship for these families or a path to citizenship, financial compensation, providing counseling and medical care. That's all on the table. I think the the real issue here is what are we going to do to heal the country? We have obligations to these families because it's our government that inflicted these wrongs on them. We also need to heal ourselves too. So that's a pretty emotional way to end the show. And I want to mention that there is a film called The Fight. It's a documentary about the ACLU, and it includes some of their lawyers who've gone to the Supreme Court, one of whom is Legal Learnt, who represented separated families. And if you want to cry your eyes out, watch the fight about the ACLU. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Jill Wine Banks. We look forward to seeing you again next week when Barb McQuaid will be back with us. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Don't forget to go to politicon.com slash merch for all our new amazing t-shirts, hoodies, bags, buttons, water bottles, and pins, 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 uh, and more. This week's sponsors are Headspace, HelloFresh, and Third Love. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or for those of you who, like me, are not Apple users, wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We do love to read your comments, and it also helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. So I'm so jealous. You guys got to get together in person this week, didn't we you? We did. We did. <laughs> Yay. It was so amazing. I got to hug Kim and have breakfast with her and just be together. It was fabulous. And I'm going to make you even more jealous because on Sunday morning, Barb is coming to my house for breakfast. She's going to be taking her daughter on a college tour and happens to be in my neighborhood. So I get to be with two of you in person for the first time in well, years. So I'm real excited, and it's well for fabulous. us. It was the first and time ever. I'd, I'd met yes. Joyce and Barb before, but it was the first time I ever met you in person. It was so you are you are even more delightful in the flesh than you are <laughs> on a on a podcast. <laughs> I love it so much. You know, this is maybe the post-COVID world. Maybe we all get to see each other in 2022 in person. I'm hoping, I'm hoping we might be coming to Birmingham to see you. Yeah, y'all come on down. We do have something live scheduled down here that we might do, in which case... I will take y'all out for really good barbecue, really good food, but also to see the civil rights sites. I mean, it's, it's really amazing living in the history. I think we take for granted what we're exposed to every day. I'd love to get to show you guys 16th Street Baptist Church and the museum. Can't wait.